0: One step at a time, she said to herself. You have done this before and you have to move to survive. Molly muttered these words in her head even with the dizziness that she was feeling and the exhaustion that is coming over her body. Her boots are almost invisible every time she steps forward in the deep snow. In front of her is Ralph, a guide who knows his way around the mountain. But with the blinding blizzard and powerful wind gusts against both of them, It was fair to say that they were lost. Without an altimeter and a working compass, it would be next to impossible to get help. Molly started to feel tired and was about to give up when up ahead, Ralph looks back at her and says he sees lights. And a building. And people. Finally, they found their way somewhere. Almost in tears, Molly voiced, Oh God, we're saved! But Ralph turns to her and says, No, Molly. We have to wait until everybody is with us to celebrate. You are listening to Untimely, a podcast about events in earlier or recent history that resulted in untimely fatalities and damages in its wake. I am your host, Lynn. As human beings, it is in our nature to seek out adventures and experience something great. This is the same for climbing and summiting almost every possible mountain peak that we can see. Mount Hood is one of these peaks that thousands of people have conquered, only second to Mount Fuji in Japan. But with the allure of conquering Mount Hood, comes to danger and hazards to every person who attempts it. In this episode, we will revisit the incredible story of peril that a small group from the state of Oregon experienced at Mount Hood in 1986. Mount Hood is approximately 500,000 years old and considered to be the highest point in the state of Oregon. It is one of the most prominent peaks in North America. Located about 50 miles or 80 kilometers southeast of the city of Portland, this stratovolcano towers above the skyline and can be seen from miles away on a clear day. The peak of this mighty mountain of the Cascades has been measured at least three times, and the reason why is because of the snow covering its actual peak makes it harder to evaluate accurately. Its current agreed-upon vertical elevation is 11,249 feet high, or 3,249 meters. A Chinookan tribe called the Multnomah named the mountain as Y-East from a legendary story of two brave heroes fighting for the love of a woman. In 1792. A British naval officer, Lt. William Broughton, observed the mountain speak on an expedition and named the mountain after Viscount Samuel Hood, who was an admiral of the British fleet. Many years later, Lewis and Clark spotted the mountain on October 18, 1805, during their famous expedition. This breathtaking peak does have its dangers. Earthquake swarms have been known to occur and its volcanic activity is continuously monitored by the United States Geological Survey. The 12 glaciers that surround Mount Hood's peak propose dangers of avalanches and unstable snow terrain. Near the summit are vents that emit dangerous gases including sulfur dioxide which is toxic to humans. At Mount Hood, rangers warn that there are no emergency medical services available on the mountain and that any help may be hours or days away because of the inclement weather. But despite the known dangers this beautiful mountain offers, we as natural explorers and curious beings conquered the peak of Mount Hood and have continued to do so since 1857. Hikers, climbers, tourists, and skiers visit this graceful mountain for many years. For winter sports enthusiasts, it has six ski areas, including the year-round Timberline, where Timberline Lodge is located at around 6,000 feet. On a side note, Timberline Lodge was used as the exterior shots of the Overlook Hotel in the movie The Shining. Hikers follow the 40 miles or 64-kilometer trail that elbows to the famous Pacific Crest Trail in one of its markers. The peak, no pun intended, time to climb the summit is from April to June and the average time to the top is between 4 to 7 hours. It is estimated that around 10,000 climbers brave the peak every year, even though there are technically no known official trails to the summit. Beginner climbers and groups use the most popular trail in the south side of the mountain that begins at Timberline Lodge. To navigate the climb, experienced mountaineers use various technical equipment and follow location markers along the way. Tons of people have summited Mount Hood with great success and many of them even came back dozens of times. Mountaineers as young as five and adventurers like a woman in high heels have made the journey up the summit of Mount Hood. One of these repeat mountaineers was Reverend Thomas Goman. He has climbed Mount Hood 18 times before. One of the well-known and loved chaplain and teacher of the Oregon Episcopal School, Father Thomas shared his love of this mountain in climbing to his students, co-teachers, and parishioners. He was known as Furder Tom, Furder being a combination of the words father and doctor, which he was both. Students admire him very much. Oregon Episcopal School is a co-ed, private, and boarding school, offering a well-rounded education to its students from kindergarten to high school. The school is located in the affluent neighborhood of Raleigh Hills, a suburb of Portland, Oregon. Father Tom is a part of the school's four-year wilderness program called Base Camp, an extracurricular program that offers survival education and experience for academic credits. The Base Camp program was based on the principles of Outward Bound, where students are placed in challenging environments that require problem-solving and teamwork. When asked about the importance of the Outward Bound program, founder Kurt Bann once said, The experience of helping a fellow man in danger, or even of training in a realistic manner to be ready to give this help, tends to change the balance of power in a youth's inner life. Attending the base camp program is a requirement for Oregon Episcopal School 10th graders. Sophomores are grouped together early in the year to prepare the climb to Mount Hood. Each group learned basic climbing skills, first aid, emergency preparedness, and proper use of equipment. In the spring of 1986, many groups got ready to summit Mount Hood. For sophomores, climbing up to 500 feet would be enough to get the credit but most students complete the climb without issue. There were 18 climbers in Father Tom's group, including himself, 15 students, one parent, and one school administrator. The school administrator was the Dean of Residence and Student Affairs, Marion Howell, and she has never done the climb before and felt that it was time to support the cause and experience the summit once and for all. Sunday, May 12, 1986 was Mother's Day. In the afternoon the news forecast was grim it's looking like storms vicious winds and moisture from the pacific coast in the mix but father goman looked at the planned route and felt that they could get ahead of the bad weather and will be back by 6 p.m the next day around 11:30 that evening the group boarded the oregon episcopal school bus to start their 90-minute drive to mount hood the bus was chalk filled with climbing gear and equipment carabiners, slings, a field stove, a sleeping bag, first-aid kits, crampons, axes, and sandwiches. The plan was to start the summit from Timberline Lodge. It is about a nine-hour climb round trip and a vertical length of eight miles or a little under 13 kilometers. Once they arrived at Timberline Lodge, they were met by two members of Outward Bound, D Zidouniak, an instructor, and Ralph Summers, a professional guide. Altogether, the group was 20 people strong. The south side of the mountain is the most popular and the most accessible route to climb. It is also called the dog route or the slog route. This was the path that the group had planned to follow. As a reminder, there are no trails since summiting Mount Hood is considered a technical climb. The usual route is as follows. First, imagine a triangle where the tip is Mount Hood's summit, and the middle of the base is Timberline Lodge. From Timberline Lodge, at 6,000 feet, a ridge is followed up, veering slightly to the left until the next stop, Silcox Hut. This stop is also a warming station and is around 6,900 feet. From there, you continue climbing straight up, veering a bit to the right until Crater Rock is reached. Crater Rock is at 10,560 feet, It is a part of a crater wall that is protruding through the side of the mountain. Between crater rock and the summit is an area called Hogsback. This is a common area to rest up and prepare for the final push. At the north end of Hogsback is the Bergsrund at 10,800 feet. The Bergsrund is a vast crevasse, but in winter times, a snow bridge forms over the crevasse for climbers to use. In times of uncertainty, it is wise to circumnavigate the Bergsrund. Once you pass Bergshund to the left, comes the steepest climb through a narrow chute. This area is called the Pearly Gates because of the formation of two ice and rock towers to the side of the ridge. Once past the Pearly Gates, the ridge is a straight route until the summit at 11,294 feet. So with the plan at hand, at 2 o'clock in the morning, the standard time for reaching the summit, the group started their climb from Timberline Lodge. It was cold with temperatures and chill factor below freezing. The snow-heavy clouds loomed over the mountain, and no one can see the peak. But otherwise, the weather conditions were okay. Father Goman checked on everyone, making sure that they were wearing triple socks and carrying all the required equipment. Without fanfare and further ado, and entirely against the howl of the frigid wind, the group huddled, prayed, and made the first step up the mountain. In less than an hour, the group was climbing against steady snow flurries. Around 500 feet in the climb, one of the students developed a stomach cramp and wanted to head back. Since the student met the minimum requirement of climbing 500 feet, the student, and the only parent in the group, told everyone that they were heading back. Father Goeman tried talking them out of it and pressured both to stay, but the two were steadfast in their decision and started to descend. The parent of the student, Sharon Spray, looked back one more time and saw the group make their tracks in the fresh mountain snow as the two of them followed their old tracks down the lodge. The group count was now at 18. When the group reached Silcox Hut, a student started suffering from nausea and cramps. Father Goeman allowed the student to head back and asked another one to follow. Even with the weather not letting up, Father Goeman and the group went ahead and continued the climb several hours later another student had to stop and was unable to go on because of altitude sickness accompanied by another student father goman urged both to follow the route down to get back to the lodge at 11:30 in the morning almost nine hours from when they started deezy one of the employees of outward bound developed snow blindness and decided to head back father goman let her go and she followed their route to get back down by now the weather conditions became severe, with more snow covering their tracks. The group whittled down to 15. Even though Father Goman, an experienced mountaineer, was leading the group, Ralph Summers, the outward-bound guide, was getting worried. Visibility was getting worse, the wind was picking up, and the snow was coming down faster than they can climb. The group was more than halfway up and was hundreds of feet from the summit, when Ralph Summers pled with Father Goman to start heading back. This was around 2 o'clock in the afternoon. Eventually, Father Goman agreed with Summers, even though the summit is hundreds of feet away. Theoretically, the group could have retraced their steps and followed the same route down, but with the snow covering their tracks and limited visibility, they were at the mercy of the snowstorm conditions. Father Goman went in front of the group, But this time, they all descended the mountain in knee-deep snow. It was 3.30 in the afternoon when the first significant trouble started. After they turned around and reached Hogsback, the youngest of the students was fighting hard to maintain body temperature. The students started slurring when talking and kept falling down and wanting to go to sleep. The rest of the group huddled around the student and covered the student with the only sleeping bag they brought. Ralph Summers fired up the stove and started boiling hot water and added two lemon drops to form a hot drink. The student drank the hot liquid and slowly regained some body heat. But because of this, the group lost an hour getting back while the weather continued to worsen. Father Goman gave directions to the group with the use of a compass. But instead of leading the descent, another experienced student and Ralph Summers took the helm and led the group. It was believed that at that point, Father Goleman was experiencing fatigue and possibly decreased cognitive function due to the cold, which forced Summers and another student to take the lead. What the group did not realize is that Father Goleman overcorrected their path and instead of going directly down the route, the group was going sideways from the south of the mountain to the west, away from the direction they initially followed. At this point, the winds were whipping at a speed of 60 miles per hour with the chill factor at 50 degrees below zero and less than an arm's length visibility. The weather conditions went from worse to deadly. Summers then finally realized that they were going the wrong way when the group started crossing one of the mountain's 12 glaciers. Crossing a glacier can be dangerous and fatal. One wrong step and a person can fall into a crevasse. Summers warned the group to follow his footsteps strictly and do not step on any cracks. It was now 7 in the evening. One hour past the time they were due back, and they were nowhere near the lodge. Summers found an area at the edge of the glacier and told everyone that they will have to stay here for the night. Since it was late and they had no idea where they were, Summers felt that waiting out the night and starting again tomorrow will be better for everyone. Plus, the group was exhausted and weak from fighting the elements of wind, snow, and the cold. He and Father Goleman started digging in the snow to form a hollow cave. The cave was about 6 feet by 8 feet and about 4 feet high that is roughly around 1.8 meters by 2.4 meters and 1.2 meters high. The opening of the cave was about three feet or about less than a meter wide. One by one, students and the rest of the group entered the cave on their hands and knees, leaving their non-essential equipment outside. Imagine 13 people huddled inside, each of their bodies folded in half, arms around their legs to keep the warmth and body temperature. Although the cave did offer heat, there was not enough air circulating, and it was getting harder to breathe. So the group decided to rotate time inside this temporary ice shelter. Two or three people would stay outside the cave, and after about an hour, another two or three would replace them. The cave's narrow entrance would start to freeze and turn into solid ice, which made going in and out harder, so the shovel was left outside to maintain the opening. But with a gale-force wind and snow blowing at different directions, the shovel, and some of the equipment started to get swept away from the cave entrance until it was lost entirely. Meanwhile, down in the lodge, those who went back earlier started to wonder, why hasn't Father Goman and the rest of the group arrived yet? It's way past their arrival time, and the outside looked like a full-out blizzard. It was 5.21 in the morning of the next day when the Portland Mountain Rescue Team arrived at Timberline Lodge. The wind gust registered at 103 miles per hour. If the wind were mixed with rain, it would have been a Category 2 hurricane. The Clackamas County Sheriff's Office set up a staging area by the lodge for search and rescue teams, including the 304th Air Force Recovery Squadron. Some brought in big snowcats, which are all-terrain vehicles that weigh over a ton, but the wind was so bad that one of them toppled over to the side. The rescuers mobilized and started the search despite the possibility of danger these rescuers risked their lives to find the group by any means necessary but sadly after almost a full day of searching none of the rescue teams found any trace of the missing group it has been more than 24 hours since father goman and the group were supposed to come back to the lodge about the same time the group remained huddled inside the snow cave Ralph Summers checked in with each person. When he got to Father Goman, he asked the chaplain to count from 1 to 10, but the frigid temperature affected his cognition, and he wasn't able to. This was awful news. Summers realized that they cannot just stand still and wait, so he decided to leave and get help. Another student, Molly, volunteered to go with him. They reassured the group that they will get help. One step at a time, the two dragged through hunger and exhaustion down the mountain. Unknown to them, they were heading the wrong way instead of south, they were heading east. After hours and hours of walking through blinding snow and whiteout conditions, Ralph and Molly found their way to a ski resort around two miles or a little over three kilometers from Timberline. At 9.50 in the morning, the two finally arrived at the Mount Hood Meadows Resort and got help. It has been 31 hours since the group started their climb. The search and rescue continued with groups of four volunteers searching through quadrants of the mountain, following the route that the group trudged to the summit. Helicopters were also deployed to search areas higher in elevation. Unfortunately, the search parties could not go on without losing their own lives, so everyone went back empty-handed. As Ralph and Molly were checked by medical professionals, the group in the snow cave were barely holding on to the last of their body warmth. The entrance to the snow cave kept getting covered with more snow and quickly turning into solid ice. Three of the students forced their way out of the snow cave to keep it from getting covered. But without a shovel or any equipment and over four feet or 1.2 meters of snow accumulating faster than they can move, the snow cave entrance sealed off entirely. Now the three students were left out and eight remained inside. It is now Tuesday evening, and the group has been exposed to the blizzard and frigid temperatures for two nights. The snow never stopped falling, and eventually, the snow cave and students outside were buried deep below. When Wednesday early morning came, the weather looked much better than the days before. It was finally good enough to allow the rescue teams to continue searching. When Wednesday early morning came, the weather looked much better than the days before. It was finally good enough to allow the rescue teams to continue searching. By now, family members of the climbers arrived at the lodge to wait for news while prayer vigils were held at the school. Even with Ralph Summers' guidance as to where to start looking, the rescuers had a hard time tracking down where the climbers stayed. Plus, the rescuers were not even sure if they remained in the area where Ralph and Molly left them. Members of the Portland Mountain Rescuers started their search from Mount Hood Meadows, where Ralph and Molly ended up from their descent. Although the weather was clear, the wind gusts kept whipping the searchers with snow and ice. The rescuers stopped to assess their situation and was trying to decide where to head next in an area that will not put them in further danger. While at an area called White River Canyon, the winds blew the snow from the ground and revealed something that was sticking out through the snow. It looked like two black dots. Once the rescuers came closer to take a look, they realized that the black dots were two bodies curled in a fetal position. The rescuers radioed down the lodge to request a helicopter. They looked around again, and directly north of the two bodies were another one. It was the three students who got out of the snow cave. When the rescuers checked the status of each person, their temperature was around 40 degrees Fahrenheit or 4 degrees Celsius. The helicopters were asked to bring warming oxygen tanks. The three bodies were rushed to the nearest hospital where doctors did everything they can to revive the three students. They managed to get a heartbeat going in one of them. But in the end, Erin O'Leary, Allison Litzenberger, and Eric Sandvik succumbed to their injuries and died. In the meantime, rescuers were pulled out of the search as the weather worsened yet again. It was frustrating for the rescuers as they were quite determined to look for the other eight who were still missing. They figured that where the three were found, for sure the others were not far behind. But they had to stop and regroup. Wednesday passed and Thursday came. The others have been exposed to the elements for three grueling nights. Despite the success of finding the three students, the rescuers had another challenge handed to them on Thursday. The area where they found the students were wiped out by the fresh snow that came overnight. It was like their tracks were wiped clean. They had to start all over again. At this point, a master surgeon of the 304th Air Force felt that they can still find the snow cave and rescue the final eight. That afternoon, he gathered volunteers, including Ralph Summers and Molly Shula, and made a plan. The volunteers will form a fine probe line where each searcher will form a straight line three feet apart armed with an avalanche probe to push down the snow and hope to find the others. Starting at 8,500 feet up the mountain, the volunteers began their line search. Hours passed, and the rescue volunteers were getting nothing. They will once again lose daylight and will have to go back. At 5.38 p.m., less than half an hour before they were scheduled to head back, one of the surgeons of the 304th hit something solid with his avalanche probe. He pushed his probe one more time using a different angle to make sure that's really what he felt. There it was again. The sergeant got down on his knees and held his ear close to the ground and heard a very faint sound. It wasn't the wind howling, but the low sound of moaning. The rest of the group have finally been found. Hurriedly, the sergeant called out to the rest of the volunteers, and everyone started digging in the snow with shovels and others with their hands. One by one, the rescuers pulled each person from the ground. Helicopters rushed in and transported each one in different area hospitals. After 89 hours on the mountain, their terrible ordeal was finally over. After many days of extensive and thorough medical procedures— Six of the eight climbers died from exposure, including Father Goman and school administrator Marion Howell. The two who survived were Giles Thompson and Brinton Clark, both 15 years old. Along with the three others found a day earlier, the death toll from the Mount Hood, Oregon Episcopal School climbing disaster was nine from the original 20 who went up. From the first hour of search to the final day of rescue, volunteers racked up 5,784 hours on the mountain. Immediately, the Oregon Episcopal School initiated an inquest of what happened. The inquiry determined that Father Goman's refusal to turn back was to blame for the events on May 12th to the 14th. It was found out that Father Goman knew that days before the start of their climb, several expeditions to the summit were canceled due to the bad weather. Even with this knowledge, Father Goman continued with the climb. Some parents, staff members, and students were disturbed by the school's finger-pointing of Father Goman. He was a good man regardless of what happened and did not deserve the full brunt of the blame. The school offered compensation to the families of those who died. One family filed a wrongful death suit against the school in September of the same year. But before the trial started, the two parties negotiated a settlement. Another family continued with another suit, which did go to trial. The court sided with the family and was awarded $500,000. The base camp program was permanently suspended, and the Oregon Episcopal School never sponsored another summit expedition to Mount Hood. The survivors, their families, and the families of those who perished made a pact to never profit from the disaster, even when Hollywood came calling for movie rights. Only one book was published, authored by one of the parents of those who died on the mountain. In June 1986, during graduation ceremonies, the Oregon Episcopal School honored those who died. Since then, every year, the school remembers this event with the Mount Hood Climb Service Day on the second Wednesday of May, a mass is held at the beginning of the day where the names of those who died are recognized with silence and reflection. Head Chaplain Philip Craig writes about the school's Mount Hood Climb Service Day with the following words. It's a tragic and important piece of our history. And while time helps to heal, we will never forget who and what was lost 30 years ago. And we will learn and grow from this part of our history because after all, we are a school first. Thank you for listening to this episode of Untimely. I'm curious to know what you think of the events in Mount Hood in 1986. What do you think of the decision by Father Goleman to proceed? Would you have stayed or left the group? If you are enjoying this episode, let us know what you think. Rate and review us on iTunes or Spotify or wherever you enjoy our podcasts. Also, connect with us on Twitter at Untimely Podcast. We'd love to hear from you.